Alright, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to where Tedra just read from, Hebrews chapter 1. With it being so hot and humid, it's got me longing for fall. Uh, cooler temperatures, leaves changing colors, Halloween, ability to wear flannel again, which is like something I like a lot, um, and soup, homemade soup, potato soup, homemade chicken and noodle soup, and then my favorite, vegetable beef soup, right? Chili's good too, but I got to stick with soup, that's my point. My mom used to call the soup that she would make kitchen sink soup because she would throw like everything in there but the kitchen sink. All the veggies you can imagine, all, I mean, all of it, just chock full, tomatoes, potatoes, peas and carrots and lima beans and green beans and okra and meat, macaroni, and then like whatever she may have on the, like just laying around left over, that's going to go in there too. And it's just chock full, right, and delicious. You may not believe it, but Hebrews, the first three verses of chapter 1, are just like that. They are chock full and delicious. I mean, it's just very, very thick soup. Just right, I mean, the first couple of verses that Tedra read right there, you think about some of the theology that we see in there. We have Christology, very high Christology. We have the doctrine of revelation that God speaks to us. We have creation, we have the Trinity, we have the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have atonement, we have purification for sins, we have Christ's session where He sat down at the right hand of the glory of God. I mean, it's thick soup, chock full soup, and it's delicious, like sop it up with some cornbread kind of delicious, good soup. The kind of soup that after you eat it, you do not want to go back to like some Campbell's chunky soup, you want to stick with the real stuff. And that's kind of the point that the author is making. We talked about last week how he's writing to Jewish, like converted Jews in the church in Rome, and he's saying, don't shrink back to a lesser thing. Don't shrink back to the Campbell's of you know Judaism. Stick with the homemade richness of Christianity. And so he just sprints like right out from the gate, declaring the supremacy of Christ. And the same theme is there for us today. Don't shrink back from Christ, the supremacy of Christ, to something lesser. Stick with the supremacy of Christ, for He is better. And so the author just comes out, you know, firing about the supremacy of Christ. That's, that's what this text is all about. Jesus is God's Son. He's the heir of all things through whom He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, this is some thick soup on the supremacy of Christ. But embedded in this thick soup, I think the author kind of outlines all of these declarations about the supremacy of Christ, I think he kind of outlines them around the three offices from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. Right? We talked about last week, when you are looking at Hebrews, you've got to read it with 
your Old Testament open. And when you look at the Old Testament, there are three kinds of people that kind of take center stage on God's plan of redemption. And there are prophets, priests, and kings. And all three of these combine and culminate in Christ. They all look forward to Him. They all prefigure Him. And they all show us a different aspect of His person and His work. And so it's kind of like out of the gate, He's saying, hey, uh, those of you who may want to shrink back, and you want to look back to those things you might be prone to look to, prophets and priests and kings, yeah, Jesus is better than them. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Jesus is the true and better priest. Jesus is the true and better king. They all find their culmination in Him. And so this morning, that's what I want to show you. I want to show you, I mean, I just gave you the three points. I want to show you how Jesus is the true and better prophet. How Jesus is the true and better priest. How Jesus is the true and better king. And then what that means in our lives. All right? And so then, number one in your notes. Jesus is the true and better prophet. Look at verse 1 again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so, I want to pause, even before we get into the prophets, just to highlight how crazy and how huge this idea is that God speaks. That He has revealed Himself to us. We prayed through Psalm 19. There's general revelation and then there's special revelation. General revelation, we can look around. It's got to be an intelligent design. But we do not know anything about redemption. We do not know anything about the person, like who God is. We just know He's powerful. He can create. It takes special revelation to know who He is. And that is what His Word gives us. And He's revealed Himself to us progressively throughout redemptive history. Like when he came to Abraham, Abraham had some idea. He came to Moses, and Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He, he had some idea. But he's revealed more and more and more and more until Christ has come. The final word. He has spoken to us. And the students this summer at camp, um, Tom, Pastor Tom over at Grace Smyrna, who used to be here, and we planted that church four or five years ago, he was the, the camp preacher. And he talked a lot, kind of brought out of um, the book and the famous quote by Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. That's the, I mean, that's the truth. God exists and he is not silent. He has spoken to us, which means if God has spoken, we're to listen we're not to be like the um, classic illustration of the, of the dad who, you know, walks into one of his kids' rooms like, hey, I want you to clean your room, All right? I'll come back and check in a week or so. And so he goes away and he comes back and he's like, hey, did you clean your, clean your room? And, and the kid's like, you know what, dad? Um, I studied what you said. I, I, I broke it down in Greek and Hebrew. I memorized it. I had my friends come over and we talked about, we studied, like, what would it actually look like if I cleaned my room? Picking up on that? 
We're not just to learn it. We're not just to hear it. We're not just to memorize it. We're not just to study it. We're to obey His Word. And so when God calls us to be peacemakers, when He calls us to be merciful, when He calls us to consider others more important than ourselves, when He calls us to anything, to take up our cross, die to ourselves, live for Him, those aren't suggestions. Those are commands from God Almighty. Like we're talking lordship here. Who's Lord? Me or Him? He's there and He is not silent. He has spoken. And so like getting back to the prophets then, like that was their job. Their job was to declare the Word of God. But Jesus is the true and better prophet because not only in His life did He declare the Word of God, but He is the Word of God. Like John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so whereas the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord, Jesus would say, but I say to you. Like that's His authority, that's His supremacy. Jesus is also the true and better prophet, not because the Old Testament is wrong, but because it was incomplete. Like the whole point of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus. He's the one that the prophets were pointing to all along. And so when Jesus meets up with his disciples on the Emmaus Road after his resurrection, they're walking seven miles to Emmaus. It says this, beginning with Moses, this is Luke chapter 22, beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He, being Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And so Jesus is the true and better prophet because the prophets always pointed to someone to come, but Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. I've come, I'm here, I'm the true and better prophet. But the biggest reason, the ultimate reason Jesus is the true and better prophet the ultimate reason He is so much greater than the prophets is because, verse 2, He is God's Son. He is the fullest and most complete revelation of the Father. Verse 3 says He is the exact imprint of His nature, which means this. In Christ's incarnation, right, when He came to earth, when He lived for 33 years, in His life, He shows us exactly what God is like. Like, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. He's the exact imprint of His nature. Which means He's the friend of sinners. Which means He's the friend of the brokenhearted. It means He's the friend of failures and those who feel like failures. He's the friend of those who may look confident on the outside, but inside are eaten up with worry and concern. Purposelessness. Why am I here? What am I doing? He's the friend of those who tr who've tried to walk away from addictions and sinful habits again and again and again and have failed in walking away from those again and again and again. Friend of those. 
A friend of those who are poor in spirit, who are meek and humble, who are small and unimpressive to the world. That's who Jesus is and that's who the Father is for Jesus and the Father are one. He's the second person of the Trinity. In verse 2, He's the heir of all things. To be the heir in the first century means you are vested with all authority. And so Jesus is a true and better prophet because He heralds with full authority for He indeed is the radiance of the glory of God. Again, we've got to study this with our Old Testament open because all of this language here is going back to Exodus. In John chapter 1, I quoted earlier, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. It goes on to verse 14 and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? And we were going through Exodus. I've talked about that word dwelt. It's literally tabernacled. It's reflecting on when God came and tabernacled amongst the Israels and His glory filled the temple, right? And so it says He came and He dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen, it keeps going, we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you come here to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, like radiance, Shekinah glory. This is who Christ is. He shows us who God is. He shows us the glory of God. That's the most full way we can see the glory of God is to look at Jesus, His person and His work. It's kind of like this. The sun is, we know it's hot, right? And it's blazing. But we would never see it or feel it without radiating beams that come to earth. And so it is with the glory of God. Without the sun, we remain in the dark regarding the glory of God. But with the Son, we have a perfect revelation of who God is. And the doctrine of revelation, God speaking to us. How did He do that long ago? In many ways and many times. How, how did He do it? Through the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son a far better revelation, exact imprint of His nature, radiance of the glory of God. This is His supremacy. Jesus is the true and better prophet. He fulfills that role. But He also fulfills the role, secondly, of priest. He is the true and better priest. For He, verse 3, look at, look at it, makes purification for sins. Like this is what the priest did. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices for God's people, but they also offered prayers on behalf of God's people. And Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of both of these roles. And so first of all, Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice for sin. The book of Hebrews is full of talking about this. I'm going to give you a couple of snippets from it, all right? He didn't offer up the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus did a perfect sacrifice. Because, I mean, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so Jesus offered up Himself, the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hebrews 9, 26 puts it like this, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the 
sacrifice of himself. And so note this. You've got to see this. Jesus is both the atoning sacrifice itself and he is the priest who offers it. Hebrews 9.11 But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, remember the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. They were just a partial covering, a pushing off, looking forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so Jesus is the true and better priest who offers a true and better once for all time sacrifice for sins. Namely, Himself. Jesus laid down His life in your place for your sins. Like You didn't have to. You feel, see, understand the love. It's completely of grace. Justice, like we fully, completely... Here's the deal. There is a heaven and there is a hell. And Jesus is what makes a difference. All of us in this room deserve hell. But through Christ, any of us in this room who would receive Him as Lord and Savior can be forgiven, can be adopted into His family, given eternal life, taken care of in this life by a Heavenly Father who loves us and will see us through all the storms of our life, as hard as they may be at times. And so if you haven't trusted Christ, receive Him today. Place your faith in Him. Be forgiven of your sins. Adopted into the family of God. Receive the salvation He freely offers to anyone who would believe. He won't cast you out. But Jesus also, even after salvation, fulfills the other priestly role for you. He prays for you. He intercedes for you. Chapter 7, verse 23 of Hebrews says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He holds His priesthood permanently because he continues forever consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them and so on the one hand this is unbelievably like comforting that christ prays for me Because Jesus, as God, knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything. Past, present, future. He's completely omniscient. 
This means He already knows what's going to happen in your life this afternoon, this week, next month, next year. Which means He can pray about it before it ever happens. It's comforting, but on the other hand, that's a bit confusing. I was talking about this with my kids, uh, I don't know, one, one of my kids a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus prays and intercedes for us, especially when we don't even know what to pray and those sorts of things. And Talking with him about, about this, she said, you mean God talked to himself? <laughs> Rick Warren point, points out, like, of course. And I mean, we do that all the time. We talk to ourselves all the time. It's just when God talks to himself, it's prayer. Like, think about, as a dad, I talk to myself in my head all the time about my kids. Right? And God talks to himself all the time about his kids. About you. I mean, you remember back to Peter, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was all cocky and bragging, I would die for you, right? And Jesus knew, hey, no, you're going to betray me this night. And so it tells us in Luke twenty-two, thirty-two, Jesus tells Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Like, yeah, it may falter, but I don't want it to fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Like, I know your faith is going to falter a little bit, but I've prayed for you that it won't fail and that you'll strengthen your brothers once you kind of come out of that. Jesus had already prayed for Peter in the storm Peter was about to go through. And in the same way, Jesus has already prayed you through the storms that you're going to face this week, next month, next year. He's in heaven right now praying for His children. Like if you have trusted Jesus, if you have received Him as your Lord and Savior, He's praying for you. Now the confusing becomes really comforting. He's praying for us. In love, He's made the perfect sacrifice for us. In love, He prays for us, sees us through anything that we're going to face. Grace upon grace, right? So He's the true and better prophet. He's the true and better priest. And then number three, He's the true and better king. He's the true and better king. A couple of years ago, we preached through the Old Testament books of First and Second Samuel and then First and Second Kings. And those of you who are here for that, you can probably remember what pretty much, especially towards the end, every single sermon had the same theme. This king's terrible. We need a better king. And that king is Christ. Like the Old Testament kings, their job was to rule over God's people during their lifetime. But Jesus, the true and better king, rules over all of God's people for all time, throughout all time and for all time. And this kingship isn't just something that's going to happen someday. I think that's a problem that a lot of times we have. We think about, yeah, he'll be the king someday. Like he's going to come back riding on a white horse, you know, sword of fire coming out of his mouth, blood of his foes. Like he's going to be king someday. But what we need to understand is like he's reigning right now. Not just someday. There'll be a visible of it someday. But he's reigning invisibly right now. 
now. Verse 3 says He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's pretty clear. But then you look at this. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so what this is talking about is what is sometimes referred to as Christ's session. Now when He ascended into heaven after His resurrection... He was seated at the right hand of the Father, which is a fulfillment of Psalm 110, by the way. You can go look it up. But He was seated as an exclamation point that the work of redemption was finished. Like it's, I have finished and I have sat down. It is done. His sacrifice was sufficient to atone for all sin. Okay, that's one thing that Christ's session shows is sitting down at the right hand. But the right hand is specifically a position of exaltation and power. And so Jesus' ascension and then sitting down at the right hand of the Father means He's King. He's the heir of all things. He's vested with all authority. It's that He reigns supreme over us and all of our enemies. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 says this, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to Him. Not someday, right now. And so it's good news that He is reigning and ruling. He's the King of the universe. And it's not up for debate. As one former pastor put it, Jesus is the king of the universe and there's nothing Satan can do about it. Let that be a warm blanket to you because like, I get it. We look at the world around us and we wonder, like, Joe, you sure he's reigning? You sure he's ruling? It sure doesn't look like it. Friend, first of all, every generation that has ever been thought that. Every generation. Because we are finite and only experience our own 70 to 80 years in one location on this globe, we're locked in by time and space. We can't see outside of that. We have no experience of that outside. We have no experience even in our own timeline of what it's like to live in Afghanistan. That seems like tribulation. We have no idea what it's like to live during the bubonic plague. We have no idea to live through what it's like the fall of Rome. We have no idea what it's like to live in one of the dynasties of Asia, one of the tribes of Africa. And we don't know what that's like. We're locked in. We can only see our time. And so every generation thinks, man, this is the worst it's ever been. No, it's not. But Joe, it's so crazy out there. How can Christ be ruling right now? Again, you're locked in. God exists outside of time and operates not on our timetable, but on His own. And so I think Exodus again. The Israelites were in slavery, those of you who know your Bible, for how long? 400 years. So it's 2021. Think back 400 years. 1621. 1621 to 2021. That's 400 years. And in the middle of that, like, like we look at Exodus 
now from almost a position of omniscience because it's been written. We see the whole story. We see all of it. And so it makes complete sense. Oh yeah, I see that. And he brought him out and displayed his power and crossed the Red Sea after all the plagues and took him to Mount Sinai and gave the law. Like we see this because we're outside of it. But in the middle of it, and for 400 years, the Israelites had no clue what God's doing. Like, where are you, God? What are you doing? And so in the middle of it, yeah, where's God? How could it be possibly be ruling and reigning? And so in the middle of it, it doesn't make sense. Whereas we are in the middle, locked in our little finite deal, we can't see outside of it. It makes no sense. But someday it will. And we'll see that it was worth it. with a little hindsight that things make sense. And so again, that's how it is with the world today. The world is crazy. But someday it will make sense. Jesus reigns invisibly in the midst of pandemonium now. He will reign visibly in the midst of paradise someday. And all the tears will be wiped away. And there will be no more sin. And there will be no more death. All the former things will go away. All the sad things will come untrue. And we will be with Him forever. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We will be His people and He will be our God. Forever. And so keep pressing on towards Christ. In the middle of it, we can't see everything. But he's faithful and good. He is a true and better prophet. He speaks the word of life. Listen to him. He's the true and better priest. Look to his cleansing and forgiveness every day. Not just when you first come to Christ, but every day you go back to that. It's the basis of your forgiveness forever. And he's praying for you in the middle of it. And then bow before the true and better King. Obey His Lordship. Trust His plan. That's what faith is. You can't see it. So you keep trusting. Knowing that He's with you. He's for you. He loves you. Like the little Bible I read read to my kids so much. With a never stopping, never giving up, always unbreaking and forever love. Friends, may these glories and truths about Christ be a one-two punch to our innate self-absorption. May we lift our eyes off of ourselves and get them on to our glorious supreme King and prophet and priest, Jesus. Don't turn back to nasty soup. Stay with the supreme, thick, and delicious soup of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, our only hope is You. And we hang on to that hope. We praise You for the truth that You are a better prophet, priest, and king. You fulfill all of those roles for us. You are good and glorious. And because of your sacrifice, our sin has been defeated. 
Because of your kingly rule, you as our shepherd defend us. And so, Father, I pray that we now would respond with faith in action. That those in this room who perhaps have never trusted you would do so today. You would give them faith to believe. And you would open their hearts that they might taste and see that you are good. That nothing will ever fill the void in their hearts but you. We will, as Augustine said, always be restless until we rest in you. That only you can take away sin. Only you can take away guilt and shame. And you gladly do this because of Christ's sacrifice in our place. Where he bore our guilt, he bore our shame, he bore our sin. To purchase redemption. And Father, for those in this room who do trust you, the prayer is the same, that they would respond with faith in action. To not just know these truths, but live these truths. Whatever they face, they know that you are king. They know that you are working. Even in things that we don't like, there's something going on. And we can trust you for it. That you work all things out for the good of those who love you, even when it's unbelievably painful and hard. And we have no clue in understanding of why or how, but you do. Help us to trust you. Fill us with hope in you, not us. Not our ways, not our thoughts, not our opinions. Hope in you. Christ in us. Not us in us. Lord, may we truly, volitionally choose, not just sing, but volitionally choose and say, have your own way, Lord. Search me. Try me. Change me. Purge me. We ask you to do these things. For our good, yeah. And your glory. Because you reign supreme over all things. You are better. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.